Welcome to our next episode of the 5 Moments of Need Performance Matters series. This is Bob Mosier, one of the many co-hosts you'll meet throughout this series. So friends, are you trying to learn more about the 5 Moments of Need? Maybe how to design for them, implement for them, measure them, and even sell them as an approach to your enterprise. Well, in the Performance Matters series, we will help you better understand the theory and best practices behind this powerful methodology. So friends, welcome back to yet another Performance Matters podcast. Bob Mosier here. Happy New Year. We're told not to timestamp these things, but this is one worth doing. We hope you had a spectacular holiday or New Year's off to a great start. And this one is sort of a New Year thing. We want to share some remarkable data gathering that a dear colleague of ours did and and think about the year coming. I think as learning professionals, we've got to strategically and intentionally think about where we're going and what are our priorities. It's, there's a lot going on. So I am so thrilled to be joined by two colleagues. Dr. Khan Gopherson, you there? I am. It's Welcome great back. to be with you. Uh, yeah, it's always great to be with you, Bob, and especially uh, looking forward to our conversation today. I am as well. And I can't think of a better person to kick the year off with, candidly. We have been so fortunate at Apply to have just a remarkable lifelong friend of ours in the industry, Brooke Thomas Record, join us uh, recently. And we are so fortunate to have her in the company. And as you'll hear in a moment, she brings remarkable insights to our industry and to the work that we do. So, Brooke, welcome. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be part of this with you today, and thank you for the warm welcome. Of course. So, friends, here's where we're going. Brooke, toward the end of last year, did some wonderful uh, work for us. You know, trends are interesting, and they're spread across multiple resources. And I don't know about the rest of you out there, but I struggle keeping up. And so Brooke took on the challenge of looking across, as you'll hear in a moment, multiple resources and really seeing where thought leaders, research folks, voices in our industry were thinking that we were things we were dealing with and where we were headed. So we asked Brooke to do is to host a conversation with us today, uh, obviously in the context of of five moments and and performance and workflow learning. Brooke, we'll have you kick that off. Give us a little bit of background about kind of what got you here and so on and what you took on and then. She has four areas she wants to highlight. So take it away, friend. Sure. This was sort of some market research that I was asked to do. And so for that, I sourced 10 different resources. And I'll just list them here so everyone understands sort of the background of where this information is coming from. The 10 learning and development trends for 2022, that was from the HR director in July of 2022. The L&D Global Sentiment Survey from 2022, that was by Donald H. Taylor. 360 Learning's 2022 report on the state of learning in the flow of work, the World Economic Forum's Global Risks Report from 2022, that was their 17th edition of that one, Uh, LinkedIn Learning's 2022 Workplace Learning Report, the 2021 Deloitte Global Human Capital Trends Special Report, the Future of Work After COVID-19, which was a special report by McKinsey Global Institute, again, that was published in February of 2021, Mind Tools for Business Annual L&D Benchmark Report 2022, uh, NovoEd's November 2022 report, The Great Workplace Disconnect and How to Solve It, and finally, a Gartner webinar about the top five priorities for HR leaders in 2023. So those were the sources that I reviewed and pulled everything that you'll hear me say today from. Wow, what a remarkable thing. And friends, what we'll do is in the podcast, we'll add in notes, um, links or references to the areas that you did. So people want to go deeper or read 
they can have that as well. So, so kick us off here. What was your, uh, the, among many that you shared with us internally, what were some that you really think as we start this year were pretty important and, and kind of hot topics? Sure. I picked four to start, so I can list all four and then we can dig into them. Perfect. Okay. First was reskilling and upskilling. That's mm-hmm. probably not a big surprise to people, but that was certainly a big trend across all of the resources that I reviewed. Another one was improving the employee experience. Mm-hmm. A third is supporting internal mobility, which is really, I think, tied into that employee experience element. And then pivoting toward hybridization, which I realize with COVID having been starting three years ago and and work having changed quite a bit in the last few years, this might seem not new, but it is still continuing. And I think companies are still figuring out the best ways to do it. So it is still kind of a shift that everyone is adjusting to. Totally agree. So the first, again, reskilling and upskilling. Here are some key data points, statistics, and um, just points of interest from the various resources I read. Worldwide, nearly nine out of 10 companies are currently facing a skills gap. Mm. The pandemic sped up digital transformation and the ever enlarging skills gap. And some 87% of executives report existing skills gaps or expect to face gaps within the next five years. While companies might be tempted to trim training budgets amid the ongoing crisis, experience should show them that investing in retraining can pay off in the long run. It's becoming increasingly important for companies to deliver timely and effective employee training. Workers are certainly eager to acquire new skills with as many as 70% being willing to leave their current position Mm. to work for a company that's more willing to invest in their training and education. L&D sees the growing skills gap and certainly recognize that leadership is concerned. 46% of learning professionals say that that gap has widened at their organization, which is Mm. up from 2021. 49% say executives are concerned that employees don't have the right skills to execute business strategy. Again, that's up from 2021. 53% of executives in Deloitte's 2020 Global Human Capital Trends research expected that between half and all of their workforce would need to reskill by this year, 2023, to provide capabilities needed now. A new study also by Deloitte, estimates that 100 million global low-wage workers will need to find a different occupation by 2030. And at the same time, the demand for skilled workers is growing, with seven in 10 employers globally saying they're struggling to find workers with the right mix of technical skills and human capabilities. More than half of the low-wage workers currently in declining occupations might need to shift to occupations in higher wage brackets that require different skills. So in the U.S., 10% of workers in the on-site customer interaction arena, think, you know, hospitality, restaurants, yep. et cetera, yep. uh, may need to retrain or gain additional skills or education in order to transition to more secure jobs by 2030. Obviously, speedy and effective worker redeployment will be needed, for example, by recruiting and retraining based on skills and experience rather than academic degrees. Mm-hmm. Rapid changes in working practices and the jobs people do can be accomplished quickly. The key is to focus on the tasks and activities required rather than on whole jobs. Redesigning work in this way can streamline processes, increase efficiency, and enhance operational flexibility and agility. So as companies look beyond the pandemic, they have an opportunity to reimagine work, their workforce, and their workplace by focusing on specific tasks and activities versus entire jobs. 
The change in labor demand over the next decade will require a major retraining effort as workers transition from jobs that entail mainly routine tasks that require basic cognitive skills like literacy and numeracy into work requiring more technological and social and emotional skills. But the scale of the retraining challenge goes beyond those workers who need to switch occupations because even among workers who keep their jobs, the tasks they perform will shift. So for instance, delivery drivers now use GPS to calculate the fastest routes and use apps to provide real-time tracking, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. LinkedIn member skills for the same occupation changed by about 25% from 2015 to 2021. So at this pace, they expect member skills will change by about 40% by 2025. Wow. In the post-COVID scenario, whenever that may be, the greatest <laughs> increase in demand is for technological skills like advanced IT skills, computer programming, engineering, scientific research and development. In China, the demand for time spent on these skills may increase by 51% by 2030, reflecting that country's rapid move into advanced industries and digitization. Demand is expected to increase for adaptability and continuous learning, reflecting a need for all workers to continuously learn new skills as technology evolves and continuously transforms jobs. This will change educators and employers as there's little consensus on how to teach social and emotional skills. <laughs> the changes brought by COVID open the door for companies to play a larger role in retraining workers for new jobs and creating career pathways with upward mobility to ensure a supply of workers with the right skills. L&D leaders report feeling concerned about continuous change and ambiguity, and when asked what they want, they report a desire to enhance the capabilities of their teams and upskill foundation developmental skills such as coaching. Examples of behaviors associated with supposed achievements in future proofing by L&D teams include managers recognizing the value of learning in the flow of work. For low-performing companies, that recognition is only 9%, but in high-performing companies, it's 62%. Yeah. Another one is that people understand how their work is linked to the organization's performance. Again, low-performing companies, that's only 25%, but in high-performing ones, it's 79%. Mm. And then thirdly, um, the learning strategy allows for changing business priorities. Low-performing companies, that's true in only 25%, but in high-performing ones, it's 93%. Wow. Um, when we look at optimal educational journeys, we're increasingly seeing that they're led by the individual student starting from the ground up with their motivation to learn on their own terms. Companies that want to deliver necessary skills to their workforce have to respect that process and employ L&D solutions that empower learners to understand and integrate what they're taught and not just retain the bare minimum needed to pass the test. Speaking specifically about the 2022 L&D Global Sentiment Survey, the data there gives a sense of a shift from 2021 sort of grand aspiration of reskilling and upskilling programs to more of the harsh reality of how hard that really is yeah. as we sort of emerge in our semi-post-pandemic world. Still, 79% of learning professionals say it's less expensive to reskill a current employee than hire a new one. Sure. And studies have found that retraining existing employees with proven track records is far more cost-effective than hiring new people. So according to LinkedIn's 2022 Workplace Learning Report, leadership and upskilling are the top two L&D priorities, followed by diversity, equity, and inclusion. So leadership and 
management training, and that got almost you know half of people's top three. But upskilling, reskilling, digital upskilling, and digital transformation, all of that combined equaled 72% of learning professionals saying that that is in their top three. So that's 72% of learning professionals focused on skills. In Asia in particular, upskilling and reskilling was rated the highest at 60% of learning professionals saying it's in their top three. And there is a 10% increase in large-scale upskilling or reskilling programs that were deployed in 2022 compared to 2021. Mm. So those are just some key points. Then we think about sort of like key challenges and areas of concern when it comes to this whole skilling thing. So scale is a big one. So according to McKinsey, more than 100 million workers in the eight countries they surveyed may need to switch occupations by 2030. Of the 17.1 million workers in the U.S. needing to change jobs, almost 15 million might need to find work in different occupational categories. So given the concentration of job growth in high-wage occupations and the declines in low-wage occupations, the scale and nature of workforce transitions that's going to be required will be really difficult. Only 15% of learning professionals say they have active upskilling and reskilling programs, and only 5% have made it to the stage where they're measuring and assessing results. The clear sense seems to be that L&D knows what to do, but it's striving hard to obtain the resources, the technology, support, and or engagement to make it happen. So if there was a sense in 2021 that there was a lot of work to be done reskilling and upskilling, in 2022, that was almost tempered a little bit by just the scale. Mm. Also, knowing if a program has made a demonstrable impact on employee performance and the business seems to still be L&D's greatest challenge because we're still lacking strategic metrics and relying too heavily on qualitative feedback. And with regard to challenges specific to learning in the flow of work, Globally, seven out of 10 L&D decision makers are prioritizing learning at the point of need, but learners are saying their learning experiences aren't practical enough. Mm. Although most learners are taking advantage of opportunities at work to help them do their job more effectively, it seems that L&D teams need to do a better job of understanding what learners need within the context of their roles to achieve that, and that's really currently not happening. Many L&D teams either don't have the resources to match learning strategies to specific roles, or they aren't invited to provide employees with crucial role-specific support and guidance. They just aren't given the opportunities they need to help people achieve more by learning in the flow of work. So that wraps up that first trend. Wow. wow. You know, <laughs> so as I listen to all of that, there's a lot there, isn't it? How do you take that and and then become actionable, you know, implement it. And I really think that the beginning of all of this requires us to really define what a skill is. You know, to upskill and reskill, well, to measure, to adjust, to change, we need to understand and define as an industry what a skill is. The fact that, that there is a skill gap and skill gaps are being recognized that's important but then what is that you know how do we how do we see and measure what that gap is and this is one of the fundamental challenges that we face is figuring out and and understanding okay so we've got to upskill and reskill so what do we what does that mean and we know from our work in the area of workflow learning that 
tactically a skill at the heart of any skill is a job task. And that job task has to be uh, infused with knowledge, supporting knowledge that helps me adapt, adjust, and to generalize from that task. And that task can be a soft skill. It can be, you know, a principle-based task or a procedural-based task, but that is the heart of, of what a skill is. And uh, we have to understand that and then put in place a system that helps us attack those skills tactically in all of those challenges that you've you've raised, Brooke. Yeah, I mean, as you wrap it up at the end, Brooke, some things just screamed at me, workflow learning. And, and this is my frustration that I'll kick off the year with. I'm sick of talking about it. I, I seriously am. And our industry nodding its head and having it on our radar. And I mean, you guys, let's put up or shut up here. I mean, I'm, get, I'm being abrupt, but what, what upsets me is if you had a doctor who knew how to heal something, but didn't learn it or try it, how irresponsible is that? You know, we're learning professionals. Workflow learning is not new. There are methodologies to do it. Let's make 2023 the year, to Con's point and Brooke, all that you shared, that we step up to these. I didn't hear a challenge or a thing you listed that I have not seen. Not don't think, but that I have not seen in the years we've done this, solve those. Literally solve those. Measurableness, yep. Time to competency, yep. Filling skills gaps, hate those, by the way, because it's performance gaps, by the way. It's not skills gaps. I mean, I have skills gaps in accounting, but I'm an accountant, so I don't care. You know, it's performance gaps that people have that, yeah, they need skills to fill them. But And, and then, Brooke, so much vocabulary pivot on training. You know, it's that it's we've got to rethink our vocabulary. And then I think that helps us to begin to rethink what we do and what we build. And so, so much in what you shared, my gosh, was just screaming to me that we've got to realign ourselves around this performance-based stuff, get off the training bandwagon, to Khan's point, redefine what skills is. Don't go down the competency modeling. And if you listen to my last podcast, I raved about this. But to Khan's point, you know, let, let's look at skills as performance-based. Lack of context means we don't know the workflow. That's what that translates to. The irrelevance of our training screams we don't know the workflow. I mean, if you listen to what Brooke said at the very end, it's all in there. So let's yeah. let's see if this year we can make that pivot. You know, behind all of this is the need that organizations have to be able to adapt, to adjust, for the workforce to be able to pivot when to, to meet changes in markets and, and so yeah. forth. And we know, as you said, Bob, we, we know through experience how to meet that. And it is met through true workflow learning, which is learning while you're doing your, your work. And, and putting in place the infrastructure to do that, to map the workflow, to then build a support system that supports people at the job task level in their workflow. This is why one of the great examples that we have of this is the Hartford, right? And the ability of, of the Hartford to pivot two of their divisions into other work in a matter of weeks. I mean, that's uh, reskilling. <laughs> moving them across that because they had in place an infrastructure to support that yeah. learning and the flow of work yeah. to support people to be able to perform and 
uh, successfully perform those job tasks with the understanding that they need to do so. Yep. Next point, Brooke. Okay. Number two, improving the employee experience. <laughs> yeah. In the Gartner 2023 HR priority survey, employee experience jumped from sixth place in 2021 to third place in 2022. Hmm. LinkedIn Learning is saying that learning leads the way through this thing they're calling the great reshuffle, which is defined as a period unlike anything <laughs> in the history of work, which I think we can all agree we're in. Individuals are prioritizing flexibility and fulfillment and their demands are steering organizations to re-examine business strategies, workforce models, values, and culture. L&D leaders are responding to workers' calls for growth and purpose while helping future-proof their organizations. Learning leaders are knocking down traditional silos to collaborate on a more holistic vision for HR. They're reaching for fresh solutions to tie skill building to career paths, internal mobility, and retention, while also bringing a new sense of care and humanity to employee well-being, diversity, and inclusion. Hmm. Organizations that prize constant learning will, according to LinkedIn, lead the world as they build the new normal. 81% of executives are changing their workplace policies to offer greater flexibility to their workforce. And having opportunities to learn and grow is now the number one factor that people say defines an exceptional work environment or culture. That was previously ranked ninth in 2019, so that's a big change in the LinkedIn survey in just a few years. Instead of committing to a day of training once a year or even blocking off a little time each day for e-learning, employees far prefer to learn as they go, making the most of opportunities to speak with people and look things up for themselves. Most learners want to learn as they go, seeking solutions to issues organically at their points of need. Three blocks that L&D can address to improve the learner's experience. One is time crunch. So employees want to learn during work hours, and L&D cites time and resources as their biggest obstacles. Relevance of both content and timing. So 41% of learners say that content's too generic. <laughs> Specifically, onboarding and manager training are identified as key arenas to make sure that the timing and relevance of learning are just right. And so the third block is technical limitations. Nearly half of L&D professionals either don't know if their LMS can support integrations for targeted training in the workflow, or they're sure that it can't. Care is moving to the center of conversations about reducing burnout and boosting well-being. And the most critical factor in a caring employee experience is each person's manager. To that end, almost 50% of learning professionals put increased attention on manager training and support this past year. Employees who feel cared about are over three times more likely to say they're happy working for their company and almost four times more likely to recommend working for their company. At companies that struggle with manager care, employees are nearly 50% more likely to apply for a new job. So managers need supercharged soft skills to attract and retain talent. It's important to recognize that workers deliver more value when they're respected and invested in. So tying back to our first trend, if investments include reskilling, it will better prepare employers for the future as well. One way to show workers the value of their contributions is to emphasize outcomes in performance management, since outcomes speak more directly to a worker's contributions toward organizational objectives. There's evidence that the shift toward outcome-based performance management is already underway. 
more than 65% of executives surveyed for the 2021 Deloitte Global Human Capital Trends Special Report agreed that they believed metrics would need to shift to capturing outcomes rather than outputs in the next five years. In that same report, when executives were asked what workers will increasingly value in the next five years, 86% predicted that they would value a meaningful mission and an opportunity to make an impact on that mission. Hmm. So those are the key points. Now we go into, again, sort of challenges and areas of concern. So we talked about managers being really key, but they also are at really high risk of burnout. So Hmm. data shows that many learning professionals are leaning in to activate the power of managers, but there's a word of caution because Managers have shown higher burnout levels recently when compared with individual contributors, so over-relying on them is a potential problem. 29% of learning professionals say they're delivering learning programs to managers about leading through change and change management. 29% of learning professionals say they're increasing the number of trainings and support for managers. And 33% of learning professionals say they're focusing on strengthening managers' coaching skills. In Gartner's 2023 HR priority survey, leader and manager effectiveness jumped two spots from the prior year to now be number one. The problem still is, though, that we don't know what they really need, and they're burned out. Hmm. Managers feel squeezed between senior leaders' demands and expanded responsibilities, so the burnout is real. Also, CEOs care more about the workforce than ever. In terms of business priorities, it's risen from fifth in 2020 to third today. For the first time ever, it's higher than financial concerns. Hmm. So it's good that the CEOs recognize the importance, but they're focused on it because they're worried. HR strategy (laughs) needs to be better than ever and support the business strategy with a solid people strategy. And of course, everyone's managing multiple trade-offs, you know, cost savings versus business requirements, talent investments versus employee needs. That's trend number two in a nutshell. You know, Bob and Brooke, every organization that we walk into, one of the first things that we begin to do is to map the workflow, map the work that people need to do. And it's been our experience that very few organizations, even though they talk about performance and so forth, they haven't truly mapped that work. And so how do you manage work that you can't see? that you haven't mapped, that you don't know. At the heart of workflow learning is this journey of mapping the workflow and then building a support infrastructure that supports people as they do that performance, as they perform their their job tasks with all the resources that they need. And if you do that, and then you also understand those job tasks in the context of where the critical impact of failure lies in those job tasks, then managers have a different, it's a different ballgame for managers to be managing that, measuring performance, guiding and directing all of that. But at the heart of managing the work is understanding what that work is and having in place an infrastructure to support that work. Well, if we want to enhance an employee's workplace and all the stuff you shared, a bunch of things jumped out at me that I think, again, map to the shift we're pushing for here. Opportunity to grow, continuous learning, learn as they go, you know, organically yeah. adapting. Content's too generic. To your point, Con, we, have, we lack context. We don't know the workflow. Technology being the issue, our LMSs can't do it. Well, duh. They haven't done it for a while. You know, a, a digital coach is what we've been talking about forever. The, the moon's align here so much. 
for me in this category, because if fundamentally, if you want someone who feels valued, someone who feels listened to and aligned to the mission, self-efficacy steps up here for me. Feeling trusted steps up for me here. Feeling, here's my word, empowered, enabled steps up for me. You want to take pressure off of managers? Empower your employees so they need less managing. The, the, the danger of all you shared was we're putting the onus on the manager to carry the brunt of this, and the learner sits there waiting for this. No, so three things jump out. Number one, outcomes. I love that emphasis. We're shifting to outcomes, yeah. not output. Love that. Outcomes are measured through understanding workflow and, and designing workflow learning. Number two, enabled learners come from learning in the workflow and being empowered with intentional tools and methodologies and deliverables that let them feel trusted, valued, and empowered. And then third, that solves part of the manager problem because it takes the emphasis off of the manager being the tip of the sword here. And let's put the employee in the crosshairs empathetically not maliciously, right? And so it, it just all points to that shift of why we've got to go you know, more in this direction. Trend number three, supporting internal mobility. Again, this seems to be in line with improving the employee experience. So here are some key data points. 54% of people surveyed for the LinkedIn Learning Report agree that internal mobility has become a higher priority at their organization since COVID hit. Career mobility and growth is a huge concern for the HR leaders who responded to the Gartner 2023 survey, and 44% don't believe they have compelling career paths. Employees who don't feel that their skills are being put to good use are 10 times more likely to look for a new job compared to those who do feel their skills are being put to good use. Cultivating a culture of internal mobility means giving employees access to on-the-job learning opportunities. That can include mentorships, shadowing, new jobs, et cetera. And the benefits are increasingly obvious, retention, engagement, and agility, plus reduced costs and hiring time. Companies that excel at internal mobility can retain employees for an average of almost five and a half years. That's nearly twice as long as companies that struggle with it, where the average retention span is just under three years. Hmm. Most workers want to be empowered where it matters most, which is in the work that they do and how to advance their careers. By providing internal mobility through opportunity marketplaces, employers may be able to satisfy workers' desire for empowerment by putting them in control of their careers. So those were the key data points around that. The big challenge and area of concern is that only 31% of one survey's respondents said they feel their organization provides a great deal of support for learning new skills and expanding professional capabilities and goals. So there seems to be the disconnect between what companies know they need to do and what's actually happening. And I think the Hartford's a big part of this, right? An example of the power of mobility, be it laterally or career advancement. Yeah, a digital coach, uh, when you map the workflow and you have a digital coach that's supporting the performance and all of that, and you have that across all of your work that's going on, the ability to move in whatever direction you need to move, that transition is so much easier to make. Also, when you've taken care of the tactical work and you, you're supporting that tactical work, that allows individuals to be freed up from trying to remember how to do something or how to find something to actually being able to th move to higher order thinking innovation and contribution and and other things. Organizations today are so caught up and busy in trying to remember how to do their work. 
figure out how to do the work, find the resources that they need to do the work, that they're unable to move to that higher order thinking uh, and be free to to contribute and to uh, move and to grow in the ways that they need to. Yeah, love that. You know, it's one one thing you said, Brooke, jumped out to me, and that was empowered in the work that they do. You want to have somebody feel mobile or be allowed to be mobile, own mobility, own, we've been hearing this forever, own career growth, own your own development, gets back to this repeating theme of enablement. You know, and then earlier you said the last thing was this whole idea about feeling supported. And then what followed it, though, that people are thinking about, well, well, then we'll give them coaches. But again, you guys, that's not an that's I don't think that's an enablement empowerment model. That's still a dependency model. The, is the employee being empowered to own their own mobility in that model? I'd argue maybe not. It gets back to understanding the workflow, the digital coach you mentioned, Khan, and supporting them in supporting themselves, not throwing more resources or back to the point earlier, Brooke, managers and exhausting them at them to solve this problem. Your last one, my friend. All right, number four, pivoting toward hybridization. Again, this isn't brand new, but I still think we're figuring it out. So the shift and adjustment kind of continues. So here's some interesting points. Roughly 20 to 25% of the workforce in advanced economies could be as effective working remotely three to five days a week Mm. as working from an office. If remote work took hold at that level, four to five times as many people would work from home at least part of the time compared to before the pandemic which would have a profound impact on all kinds of things like urban economies, transportation, consumer spending, et cetera, which I think we're seeing in some cities already. Hybrid remote work models apply mainly to computer-based office work because it's the arena with the lowest requirements for site-dependent work. So in this arena, 70% of time could be spent working remotely without losing effectiveness. Remote work presents a potential opportunity to be a great equalizer. For instance, in one survey, only 27% of remote workers say that they feel less connected to coworkers since the pandemic began in regard to producing quality work. And a 2017 two-year study by Stanford University shows that on average, remote workers are 13.5% more productive than their office-based counterparts, 9% more engaged in their jobs, and 50% less likely to quit. Hmm. And uh, the recent American Opportunity Survey by McKinsey and Company revealed that when given the option, the vast majority of employees across industries and job titles would choose to work remotely, 87% of them. Hmm. So with all of that positive spin, now we talk about the challenges and and concerns. So 47% of HR leaders surveyed believe hybrid work worsens employees' connection to culture. And just one in four employees today reports feeling connected to their culture. 54% of workers feel less connected than before to their organization when it comes to everyone working toward the same business goals. Senior managers are far more likely, 65% of them say, they feel more connected to their company and aligned with common goals. On the other hand, only 42% of middle managers and individual contributors feel the same. Employees who are lower on the food chain find themselves sort of consuming scraps of information delivered to them more slowly and sporadically than before, especially in remote and hybrid situations, middle managers and individual contributors are unable to connect as quickly as they could in an office environment with the context, the nuances, and the clarity of work roles and goals coming down from senior managers. 
So to wrap it all up today, L&D leaders are reporting that attitudes towards learning are at their lowest point in three years. Employees aren't as engaged as they were during the height of the pandemic, and the appeal of digital learning is wearing off. And in yeah. there lies the rub. <laughs> what, <laughs> what, are we, what are we defining digital learning as? Yeah, yeah. Right, Khan? Yeah. yeah, traditional digital learning is deadly, right? As I listen to you share all of that, Brooke, again, what comes to mind is how do we manage a dispersed work team who are not together? How do we tie them together in that work? Well, again, it requires us to understand and to map the workflow and to have in place a system that supports that workflow. When you have that common workflow and it's defined and you have it and you have a system in place that's supporting that work, then you're able to work together. You're able, because you know what that work is, and you're able to team together and to work together and to connect together. That's just such a vital part. We are not going to be able to address this hybrid work environment without defining our workflows and putting in place a support system, a digital coach support system that supports that work. I think the question, the elephant in the room is, for me, waiting for this to go away is wrong. This has birthed a new work culture that is the new normal. And now, yeah, it'll, it'll settle out. One day in the office, two days in the office. But we're not going back to five days in the office. And, and, and I think in many ways, this was a sleeping giant because I think in a lot of industries, our company itself, it has been remote since its inception, and we've done fine. So there's always been remote workers. This accelerated and exacerbated it. So I think, Brooke, a couple of things jumped out to me in that as well. The, the lackluster of digital learning, which I also think encompasses virtual. I love the fact this is still on the radar, even though, to your point, it may have started three years ago. I think we're just getting our arms around what it really means. I think we, we triaged it in the beginning. And we patch quilted it in the beginning. We weren't solving it then. Now we're having to, because the dust has settled, and now we're having to deal with it. I think we have to go back to look at what we make. And we, I think too often, though, we see statistics like you shared about digital learning dying off and going, well, then digital learning's bad. Well, maybe the kind of digital learning we have is bad. But digital learning could be stunning. Virtual instruction might be lackluster or not engaging. We don't throw virtual learning out. Maybe we do it differently. You know, and, and I think that's the challenge of the day in 2023 that we run at is how do we, and here's the continuing theme, reinvent ourselves and our, and our approach to these things. Scrap information, performance support. Don't make it scrap, make it structured and well. Redefining workflows. People feel that the rug's been pulled out from beneath them. Well, rapid workflow analysis. What is the new workflow? And to Khan's point, the collaboration and stuff that surrounds that. Access to resources. They're not the person in the cubicle next to me anymore. All right, let's help redefine that. I mean, you guys, the opportunity to revisit this in this calendar year is stunning. And the door is open. Will we walk through it is the question, because people will make it work with or without us. They just will, right? And so I think, Brooke, your, your research is stunning. The data is compelling. We're, I think we're beyond the irrational nature of this, if that makes sense. And so it's time to take this on in a rational and an intentional way. But it, I would argue it's not a time to just 
boomerang back or assume the definition of insanity, right? The same thing over and over again is going to somehow miraculously get us a different result because it is, we live in a brave new world and it's, it has shown us that there are cracks in the dam and we need a new, a new way. And we know and have a new way. Brilliant. Really such, such good stuff. My gosh, this could be the most data heavy podcast we've ever done. You got to, I'm sure you're all all going, boy, I got to really listen to that seven times. I've been taking notes myself and I've heard the data before, but Brooke, thanks so much for what a way to kick us off. What a a powerful, substantiated, validated way to kick us off and show us the challenges ahead, but let's take them on now. Out there, a parent, what are we going to do about it? Thanks so much. Thanks, Con. Thank you, Bob. Great work, Brooke. Thank you. Thanks to you both. Happy New Year, everyone. We'll be talking again soon. Thanks. Well, that's it for this episode of the Five Moments of Need Performance Matters series. We look forward to future conversations around how to best put the five moments of need into practice. We welcome your feedback and can be reached on Twitter using my Twitter handle at BMOSH as well as our Five Moments of Need website, which is www.the5momentsofneed.com. We hope you're finding these helpful and will subscribe to future episodes. Have a great day, friends.